Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to a show by the remaining two survivors of the podcast Be Real. I am Jonesy the Cat, and joining me on the other line, his structural perfection is matched only by his hostility. It's Noah Ballard. Hey, buddy. How's it going, pal? Like that intro. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. Yeah? Just got back from a pretty uh, great bachelor party weekend so hell yeah feeling uh pretty good went back to the gym today um though maybe back is a misleading word <laughs> you trying to get in a uh, ripley shape oh yeah i'm Are you I, looking for those those delts yeah i mean i want to be part of the uh the colonizing efforts of uh wherever the wayland corporation thinks we should go right on right on well, as you might have guessed, we're here to talk about three films in the Alien franchise. I believe we're going to talk about another three in another episode, but I'll need to confirm that at the end of the show. But today, on this episode, we're talking about The New Alien Covenant, 1979's Alien, and 1986's Aliens. Is that right, my friend? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head this time, Chance. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I think we're going to start with a new Ridley Scott film, Alien, colon, Covenant. Did you know that this movie, I'm jumping right in, was called, the working title was Alien, colon, Paradise Lost? Yeah, that's way more pretentious, but still a shitty title. <laughs> the first time I saw that, I thought it was a joke, and then another person wrote it, and I was like, oh, well, that's, that's not a joke. That's actually how Ridley Scott is thinking about his relationship to these films at this point. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he does feel that he's the he's the proverbial Milton to uh <laughs> to the alien world. To God and Satan. Right. Um but these movies are like essentially parables about good and evil and what that means, especially I would say Prometheus, um, which we've already reviewed in a previous yes. podcast. And um the most latest installment of uh you know, what it means to, there's a really interesting read on this one we can get into soon about just like, what does this movie say? Like, what do all of these movies sort of like say? Yeah. It's dark. Well, well, yeah. Yeah. Um, what do they not say that some of the new movies are now like forcing the old ones to say also? <laughs> Absolutely. But let's get, let's um, talk about it a little bit about what we're getting into for people unfamiliar with the alien franchise. Okay. Okay. Um, so, like you said, this is dates back to 1979, right? And um, it was a Ridley pretty, Scott's first major film. His first major film, and then, of course, he leaves the world, leaves his universe, and then James Cameron, uh, famous for movies like Avatar, Titanic, all that good stuff, Terminators One and Two, mm -hmm. he steps in and like 
I mean, makes the movie makes the, creates the tropes that I mean, sort of acknowledges the tropes that worked in the first one, but makes a whole zoomed out. Like the first one's a very claustrophobic one-off kind of movie. Very much. It does not have the universe building that like James Cameron brings to the table. Right. And he all of a sudden gives it franchise legs. Then the franchise got new sort of artistic legs when Ridley Scott returned to the project to make two prequels. And you tell me it's going to be three prequels? Yeah. He, at some point he was making noise about like two and three more. But for now it's one more. Okay. It could be like a Prometheus trilogy. Sure. So you've got, of course, it has to be a trilogy. But the and this sort of sets up, you know, everything with the space jockey from the first one, and like how this creature like came to be in a very, I would say, Miltonian sort of question about evolution and good and evil, and like what role does good and evil play in the evolution of animals and species? Yeah, which is. I think a pretty stupid, pretentious way to get into what is essentially a carbon copy of the original films. So, Chance, do you want to give us the the plot here? Yeah, let's do this. Um, so, we've got a couple guests coming up, but first we're going to kind of introduce this movie so you know what we're talking about. Um, so, so, last we left you in Prometheus... Yes, Dr. Elizabeth Shaw, Numi Rapace, and, and a headless David, Michael Fassbender. Android. Wait, I thought it was a bodiless David. Yeah, she just has his head in a bag. <laughs> she just has his head. So, uh, yeah, Numi Rapace and Michael Fassbender's head are searching for parts unknown. And so Alien Covenant picks up 10 years later with a group of colonists. Again, we really don't know what's going on on Earth, who are like... So many of these movies in cryo and the sentinel of their ship called Covenant is Walter, played by Michael Fassbender, who we quickly find out is an updated version of the android David. Um, Now, the ship is hit with a solar flare. They come out of um, cryo or come out of like hyperspace and some tragic things happen. You want to go like half spoilers on this movie? What do you want to do? I think uh, calling James Franco not being in this movie tragic is pretty, uh, <laughs> it's pretty misguided. I thought so that was the best part of this movie. It's like, wait, is Franco in this? And then, no. The movie <laughs> says no. He's basically Kevin Costner in Big Chill. They literally just took, like, B-roll footage from um, 127 hours of him just like, I'm climbing a rock, baby, I love you! Which has nothing to do with the movie itself, really. Yeah, that's true. And then they just burn his ass to death almost immediately. Well, the movie does. It's an accident in the plot. The wife of dead Franco, uh, Catherine Watterson, plays Daniels, who's a terraforming expert on this uh, expedition. And she and Billy Crudup... They were the new captain. They're in charge. They get the uh, the Billy perennial. Billy Crudup is the captain now. That's right. Um, they get the the perennial signal from a down ship somewhere, and they're like, "Oh, there's a planet nearby. Maybe we don't oh, have to go." Oh, we've never seen any other alien movie before. <laughs> Let's go check it out. Maybe we don't need to go to this p- planet that's still seven years away that we have earmarked for colonization. Maybe we can go to this one right next door. 
Uh, so they touch down um, with, I don't know, there's like 15 people. There's too many people to keep track of. Um, but people and there's quick- like 1,500 more people. What's that? In the, in the actual ship, there's like 1,500 more people. Right, yes. They have like embryos and like sleeping colonists. This is just the crew of the yeah, ship. Yeah, this is just the crew. So anyway, they touch down. There is water and air, but there is not a soul. Very quickly, some spores get into some unimportant characters. Uh, very quickly, their chests start bursting, a la any other alien movie. Some xenomorphs appear. Uh, the ship blows up, and we're well on our way. Yeah. So, and, then we stop? and then of... we have to say David shows up. So they run into David, who is living in this he's, abandoned city, yeah. his dire repaired. necropolis. Yes. He, he's he more than just a head now. Um, and what the middle act of this movie becomes, which is up to this point, it's been a very normal, like, here's a crew of randos, watch them die in increasingly violent and entertaining ways, and ways that you mostly already know about. But then Walter, played by Michael Fassbender, and David, played by Michael Fassbender, start having conversations. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like watching this season of Fargo, except mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a Fassbender doing a, playing off Fassbender. Yes. Okay, th- so I think what you're getting into is probably my biggest issue with the movie. Is let's, that let's hear it. Because this, this, this genre... This setup for a movie is so tired. All these yeah. movies have the same plot. It's here is a female protagonist who goes with a mostly male ship. And she tells them, let's not do that thing. It'll probably kill us all. And the men are like, let's just do the thing. Like the company wants us to. Mm-hmm. And then she watches everyone who thought it was a good idea initially die. And she has to yep. kill like whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it's an alien. And it's scary as fuck, and it's, like, constantly, like, there's water just and mucus just constantly coming off of it. But because that plot is every one of these movies, yes, you either have to, like, double down on the camp, a la Alien vs. Predator, or you, you have to just put it into this Ridley Scott fifth gear of, like, no, this is not merely an alien film. This... <laughs> It's a covenant film. It's Heart of Darkness in space. <laughs> right. Except Colonel Kurtz is a robot. Yeah. And you know who can... Like, his his only foil is another robot. And that's, like, the whole metaphor of the alien... At least the prequel alien movies. Is that to beat something bigger... Like, if you're on the food chain, to beat the thing slightly less than you but not so much so that you can just crush them is to build something more fearsome than you are and have Mm -hmm. that do the dirty work. But ultimately that thing will kill you. This whole franchise is a, a cosmic revenge story about the universe punishing humanity for in the beginning, seemingly something as simple as uh, simple, but dirty as corporate mining and now as simple as like, or as sorry, as ambitious as we need to find new, new earth and the universe is saying, like, no, humans, you don't get New Earth. Like, I wish a movie like Moon could have been, like, Alien colon Moon. Like, something that <laughs> shows, like, is in the universe. Like, it's, like, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Like, it's an anthology picture, like, in the same worlds. But it doesn't have to be the same, like, alien thing. So, 
but I wanted to know why these people like did what they did. And especially like if you're going to look back and I'm glad that we watched the original alien and alien aliens, because like the way in which you develop people like in alien, like the premise is going to carry that movie. So you don't need to like spend a whole lot of time on the people. Right. But this movie, like, you know, the premise and the premise does not excite in any way other than like taking more time with the and this is why I did it. Like with Paul Reiser, like in Aliens, like he doesn't have Mm -hmm. his like, well, it's the perfect (laughs) species, you know, it's the perfect organism. Like he doesn't have that. But if you gave him that, it's the same movie. Ultimately. Basically, and I wrote this in the thing that I wrote about this movie, but Michael Fassbender has created the David character out of the little smile that Ian Holm gives when he says, I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. And Michael Fassbender was like, what if I did that for like hours? Right. <laughs> like that's what this character is. And in some ways, so here's where I think where I can forgive this movie, which yes, as like a textual narrative experience is frustrating i think what you have is like this movie where you know that it's a completely hopeless and b the mechanics of what is going to happen and so as michael fassbender takes over this movie he becomes like the color commentator for the film like he starts to i mean he did this in prometheus too right where after that horrifying cesarean scene he was like Oh, didn't think you had it in you. Sorry, poor choice of words. Or he would just like, these horrible things would happen and then he would kind of like get a little thing in there and be like, this is, you're still watching an alien movie. So like, I'm going to make this as entertaining as I can. You know, the scene where, so there's some scene where a moron, moron puts their face over a face hugger pod. (laughs) But Michael Fassbender invites him to do so by saying, it's really something to see as in like, come here audience. Like it's time for you to see the thing that you see. So it becomes this running commentary track for what these movies are. And I think it's really both funny and like disturbing. Yeah. From there, should we throw to a guest? Cause we're like halfway through our conversation about this, right? Let's do it. This crew is made up of couples. It's the first ever large-scale colonization mission. And everyone back on Earth is really grateful for your hard work. Our guest today is a writer and editor for New York Magazine and Vulture. But I wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't say I first fell in love with his work at Grantland when he was profiling Alex Garland and writing extrapolations of draft day. Um, And he wrote this week about what a striking and developed sort of villain david the android is in alien covenant kevin lincoln thanks for doing the show thanks for having me that just that intro reminded me that like everything i wrote for grantland was just the most grantland thing (laughs) coming up with alternatives to draft day is very 2014 and very grantland yeah thanks for having me you bet it's uh i appreciate you doing the show um so you wrote this essay for vulture um earlier this week uh, that's sort of juxtaposed Alien Covenant and its very serious focus on David with kind of the the off-sighted villain problem that uh, Marvel and a lot of blockbuster movies have. Um, but you made a good point in the in the opening that I wondered if you could kind of reiterate, which is how does like the hero-centric machinery of these movies and like the propagation of them kind of deprive us 
of good villains. Yeah, it's it's an interesting aspect of the movie universe that we have sort of built for ourselves and also had built for us by the studio apparatus that kind of needs movies that can endlessly proliferate and iterate and just like you can have a million different adventures that these people could go on a la television and Mm -hmm. the classic sort of example of this is the sitcom where nothing like really changes you know from episode to episode and so you have these movies where the heroes can't really lose right they can they can suffer a minor setback Mm -hmm. and you know end of the movie there can be a glimpse of whatever their next adversary is going to be but the heroes can't really lose. They can only die if you already sort of know that the actor isn't coming back or the series is going to be rebooted. Um, and so that means that the villains, you know, the ascent, the whole idea of a villain is somebody who represents evil defeat, the ultimate sort of danger that we live with on a daily basis. So the greatest villains in literature, in film, um, are people who seem very, very real and very dangerous and very scary. Uh, You know, you think of, like, Robert Mitchum's character in The Night of the Hunter, and he is a guy who represents this thing that we all know, which is the preacher who is, you know, he's a man that that kind of commands respect, but he is, like, very clearly evil and dangerous, and what if we can't stop him? Like, what is that? for society and so with these mo- with with marvel movies though that's just totally turned on its head because the villain can never really be that mm-hmm. because you know they're going to be stopped and um and i think the interesting thing about alien and about some of you know the rare movie where the draw is not the superhero necessarily you know um is that the heroes don't have to win Right, and so all of a sudden, the villain can be a lot more potent and a lot more interesting. Yeah, is that sort of the, the that question of what if we can't stop him seems sort of like the the essence of terror, which is kind of one of the one of the main parts of of this franchise. Do you think this this franchise in particular is so is so villain ready, so David ready, because it's really never been afraid to kill people that you liked to begin with? You know, the horror genre in general tends to support this kind of uh, dynamic because somebody has to win. It doesn't always have to be the person you think it is. And also in a horror movie, the iteration there is generally centered around the villain. And so, you know, you can kind of keep um, confronting this this fear, which, of course, represents you know, in all good horror movies, the, the fear represents a real fear that people have. The alien in Aliens obviously represents the terror of, you know, the body, of the animal, of the unknown, of all these different things. But David kind of represents the terror, you know, the the terror of like the urbane, sophisticated intellectual who has so abstracted life that it doesn't really have any value anymore. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's get into talking about David. Um, and we had talked before we started recording about how sort of maybe the the lines of where people fell in appreciation of Covenant probably related to what they liked best about Prometheus. Um, 
And it kind of felt, at least to me, it felt like you could kind of feel Ridley Scott wanting to hand the keys of Prometheus to the David character. Um, but then, you know, Guy Pearson, old face kind of got in the way. Um, could, could you feel this focus on David coming or did you want it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those situations like, uh, you know, Guy Pearson, old face, notwithstanding, uh-huh. where the most interesting, you know, certain actors have a gravity that they that they kind of possess in every movie they're in and michael it's very hard to make a movie where michael fassbender is not the center of attention very true he is i mean i particularly think he's a he's a he's a great actor but beyond that he is an incredibly charismatic and interesting and special screen presence Mm -hmm. he's just not he can't really be a character actor like he's too I mean, he can be a character actor in the same way that somebody like, um, I mean, they're obviously incredibly different actors, but like Philip Seymour Hoffman was a character actor, but when he showed up in the movie, you were immediately more interested in whatever he was doing than whatever else was going on. And you mentioned Mission Impossible 3 in your piece as sort of a analog to a villain of this quality. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and in that case, you know, I think it's a similar dynamic where they just were like, all right, let's give the, give this guy the keys to the car. Like, this is the thing that's interesting in this movie. Like, yeah, Tom Cruise is great. Like Tom Cruise is going to do the thing that Tom Cruise does. And we all (laughs) like expect that just like an alien, the aliens are going to do the thing that the aliens do. And, you know, I thought Catherine Waterston did a, a really good job, um, as sort of the Ripley analog Daniels, uh, an unfortunate name, but it just such a sort of like a like a very uncatchy name. Like yes. everybody did fine, and the aliens did the thing that they were supposed to do. But the X factor was that you felt as though something else was at play. Talking about the just the wattage of the Fassbender performance, Kevin. What is your what's your favorite note of that performance? Um, it's interesting you use the word note when he's teaching himself to play music. I think that you get, you get a glimpse of this guy who has this deep, this deep reservoir of feeling and you kind of, I mean, I think the movie raises a really interesting question, which is what happens if we create a creature that can feel, but does not have any sort of stake in humanity. You know, what is the what is the aspects of of life that transcend the human being and exist in kind of the next realm? And the movie presents, I think, what is a very convincing answer, which is art uh, and 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 the pure act of creation mm-hmm. kind of are the two things that above all else give human beings meaning, but would also give any other sort of um intelligent creative life form meaning and the fact that walter is it has been stripped of his of his creators of the capacity to create is another interesting wrinkle it points you in the direction of being like well okay like i kind of i get it like i see where this is going i wanted to bounce an idea off of you because you brought up two examples of uh villains who get to win uh, in your piece, which Hannibal Lecter and John Doe from Seven. 
And I, I, I wondered if what's so striking or effective about those two and David is that the, the awful things that they do in the plot of the movie, they've already done them or they will do them. And the time that we actually spend with them is basically all character work as it's like sinking in for you what kind of person would do these terrible things that have already happened or are surely going to. Does that check out for you? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you know, I think that the thing that binds the three of them together for, for, for me and is generally something that you see in, you know, name any villain that you kind of remember from a great film or, or novel or whatever. It's that they have a very coherent sort of logic to what they're doing. Right. It's, it's always like warped. It's always sort of um, perverted in some way, but they can present it in a way that's like complete, you know, they present a complete picture of what they're doing. And often for that logic to have been completed, it helps if they've already done some of the things mm-hmm. where, you know, cause the com one of the worst possible tropes that you see over and over, even now that it's become like a total joke is just the, villain like standing in front of the hero who's like tied to a chair and they're like and now i'm gonna tell you my whole plan right time to stop it like i believe that austin powers really makes fun of that right i haven't (laughs) seen that movie in a long time but i think that that they call that up very directly but when 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 the when it's all done already it makes a lot more sense for somebody to be explaining themselves right it's all of a sudden like oh yeah like you can't stop this. It happened already. Right. And so it feels more potent. Totally. You had a great point in the piece too, about the, the scope of David's plot versus the plot that we so often see. And particularly in superhero movies, um, you know, this is basically like a pet project that's tied to his own existence. That's so horrifying. Um, so when the stakes are too high, when we're always trying to rip a hole in the fabric of space and time, how does that affect the, the efficacy of a villain? Well, you know, I think Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is a, is a very good example. I would assume that most people who are listening to uh, this podcast have seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. If you haven't, maybe skip ahead a minute or whatever. But Go for it. The villain in that movie played very Kurt Russell-y by Kurt Russell, his plot is to literally turn the entire scope of existence into himself. <laughs> uh-huh. Interesting idea, but like that really is going to throw a wrench in the gears of the Marvel Cinematic Universe if everything is just Kurt Russell. Every, you know, we love Kurt Russell, but it's like a step too far, you know? If we were around to see it, not a bad place to live, but we would be Kurt Russell. Right, we'd all be Kurt Russell. And maybe that's a good ending for you. You have to to make peace of that yourself. But, like, that is not going to happen. It's just not. Like, no no version of that's going to happen. You know, I think that's probably why why Loki is maybe, you know, I think I find the character eminently ridiculous, especially kind of considering – its origins is like a real, you know, character in mythology that it's basically like Tom Hiddleston, like looking like he's going to play in a goth rock band from the eighties. But 
still that character is interesting because he can achieve its he can achieve his goals in degrees um or he can you know facilitate other things he can be good and then he can be bad he can he there's some there's some range that he can explore and i think this is also why you end up seeing another um very pervasive trend lately that's happened in three movies in just the last two years batman versus superman you know captain america civil war and the fast uh furious seven where the heroes fight each other because then like there is some suspense because you don't know who's going to quote unquote win and then how they're going to kind of bring everyone back together at the end. So there is like a slight way to play with expectations, but at the same time, ultimately you know that they're going to be back together at the end. Kevin, thanks so much for joining the show. I appreciate it a lot, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And then I was alone again. I learned of their ways and awaited our arrival. So, I mean, I set up that whole ridiculous, like, you know, if you want to eat the bigger fish, you got to make the bigger fish that's going to eat you kind of thing. Yeah. From earlier. Um, But that, like, kind of makes this movie fall into, like, a weird kind of, it's not quite a, like, a humans dealing with robots movie like Ex Mm -hmm. Machina is. And it's not quite the like interesting alien creature space movie that maybe like gravity or interstellar is. And it, it's just like kind of like a mediocre both in my opinion. I thought the ride itself, though, like as just a pure piece of entertainment was like pretty watchable, though. It's definitely visually speaking. You have never seen the the speed and ferocity of the violence. The visual effects are now good enough that they can show these things in a clearing, like leaping at people. And it's uh, it's a whole new frontier of kineticism. Yeah, it's like a huge step beyond like the little alien baby on a stick or whatever they used like in Alien 1. Yes. And then for me, I feel like the ways in which this movie feels the need to turn back into an alien movie, it just feels so obligatory. The alien jumps on the ship. They get on the ship. They have to find a way to get rid of this thing. Oh, you think it's gone? No, it's not. There's a few more people left to kill. Oh, no. And what I really... Could we have done this whole movie with Fastbenders? Could the whole movie have been like a debate between love and duty, between art and an inability to create? Because those conversations are... They're like sexual and hilarious and like moving and weird. And he's just... He is something to behold Well, that's why I think it would make more sense to have this be like an alien anthology movie where you like totally cut out the Catherine Waterston part. Totally. I totally agree. Where like you just have one synthetic robot show up like looking for this lost research (laughs) vessel. David's one man show. (laughs) And then it's literally the two of them 
wondering when their like Godot of Numira Pace <laughs> is going to show up, and she never does. Incre- and it turns out, well put. it turns out that David is in fact launching this campaign to unleash the alien on humanity, mm-hmm. and then it would be Walter's like purpose to stop him. That'd be great. That is a great ninety-minute alien anthology movie. So the problem is that they try to put another movie inside a movie we've already seen a bunch of times. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's okay. I got it's you. two kind of okay movies shoved together into like a two-hour runtime mm-hmm. that like feels like two hours, but is not unentertaining. What's your favorite? I asked Kevin this. What's your favorite part of the Fastbender performance? I liked the very like uh, Frasier thing where he's just like, oh, who wrote that poem? And he was just like, oh, you know, whatever. And he's like, nope, it's Keats. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, David says it was Byron, and then was, Walter tests him it was Shelley. It was Shelley, you're right. But <laughs> it, was it was still funny. It sounded like Fraser and Niles. That's hilarious. Because That's it's like, amazing. oh, what poem did you just insult me with? <laughs> ah, you misattributed the quote. <laughs> Like, the quote isn't any less poignant because he, like, got the poet wrong. That's hilarious. Um, Um, Yeah, if you want to finish up here, perhaps we should tell the the listeners how we rate things. Cue the tape. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy. Things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again. Like watching The Departed, or Jaws, or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad bad is easy too. Things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild Wests. A conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad, bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good, bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good, bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say, I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. It's dumb. It's too long. It doesn't break any new grounds. But... It's entertaining. Like, I watched it on, like, Memorial Day Monday when it was kind of rainy and overcast. And, like, you know what? For two hours, that was fine. Hmm. So, bad good. I'm going to go ahead and say that this movie is good good. I'm going to overlook its very serious, I grant you, intro flaws. But then to just give this movie to this actor playing two parts... And to have it, like, create, to really, like, flesh out this metaphor that was, I think, bugged a lot of people in Prometheus. But then to have David be, like, a romantic poet and an artist in his own right. And to have that also sort of reflect, 
like Ridley Scott himself and like what he's like still trying to do with this this dire necropolis of a franchise at his old age. Like I think this movie is there's so much to sink into if you love that middle act and I do and it's really entertaining. Good good. I think the takeaway from their scenes together is a metaphor for the takeaway about Ridley Scott's career in that yeah. in space nobody can hear you babe. <laughs> well, The Martian, Prometheus and now another not good space movie oh, from Ridley so Scott. So the person who really liked The Martian to a person who didn't like it. But you are such an apologist for the for Prometheus. Oh yeah, I really like Clearly Prometheus. the inferior <laughs> of the two previous films. I agree. I think this one's better. No, I meant just the Martian and Prometheus. Oh, no. Prometheus is much more interesting than the Talking Martian. about Ridley Scott's space pictures. Well, you don't like the fact that... And skip ahead 15 seconds if you really don't want spoilers. You don't like the fact that uh, David was trying to decide if he was Adam or Satan and he just turned out to be Noah? I loved that. Ugh. Come on. You like it. You like the Old Testament read in here. <laughs> Oh, it's a very Old Testament read. I just... But because obviously this movie is going to draw its inspiration from the like something like the Old Testament, like the twist at the end is like this my mistaken identity twist at the end is so fucking predictable. Yeah. Like you... If you have one actor playing two roles... <laughs> At one point or another, there will be a case of mistaken identity to justify that casting choice. Well, before we exit, before we go into cryo with uh, with Alien Covenant, why don't we hear from Josephine Livingston, who's going to talk a little bit with me about the way that uh, the android character just grabbed hold of this franchise and did not let go in the... Uh, most recent installment. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. So our guest today is a culture writer for the New Republic, and just last week she authored a great piece on how the androids took center stage in the new Alien Covenant film from Ridley Scott. Josephine Livingston, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you. So, so you opened your piece... Um, with this idea that aliens and humans and machines have always kind of constituted this this triangle in this franchise universe. Um, and the angles of the triangle can change, and like one corner can foil the other corner in a different combination in a different movie, um, but that these three forces are always kind of teaming up or at odds. So before Covenant, um, what do you think was like the primary function of the, the android corner of the triangle? Hmm. So I think pre-Covenant, and especially in the early movies, the androids were an element of the film that let the viewer wonder about intentions. Following on in the tradition of 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, androids represent this, or kind of, you know, artificial intelligence represent this very interesting nexus of um, elements of humanity, like the voice, you know, looking like a person. Mm -hmm. Um, but with 
a different set of motivations, which in fact have something like more in common with machinery, right? More in common with, in the case of Alien, um, the spaceship itself, right? Right. So they they represent this kind of like physical overlap of those two points in the corner of man and machine, mm-hmm. um, and by their presence, question how the machine, the man, and the alien all kind of like actually fit together and like they kind of throw that relationship into a sharp relief. Mm-hmm. So let's move to Covenant. And I wanted to kind of quickly ask about maybe just your theater experience um, as the, because the androids start to kind of dictate where the center of this movie is in the second act. But to that point, it's been like a pretty like run of the mill uh, alien movie. Um so, I mean, I don't know. I had a moment of kind of looking around at people who thought they were on one kind of very tried and true ride. And maybe there was a little uncertainty when like the woodwind lessons and the uh, arguments about romantic poetry authorship started. I'll finger and you blow. That part. <laughs> right. Yes. That part. <laughs> um, so, what, so what feelings did you get uh, as kind of the second act of this movie takes hold? That's really interesting that you say that. Um I, for one, found the first scene so striking. Right. I, it really stayed in my mind, and I was waiting for when this movie was going to get, like, freaky with androids. The first scene being uh, Peter Wayland and, and David, uh, David at his quote-unquote birth. Exactly. Um, he's just being super fucking creepy from the beginning, right? He's, like, he's playing Wagner. He's pouring tea in this really sinisterly perfect way. Right. He's gazing upon the supersized you know, figure Michelangelo's David. The whole thing is just like, he's not even wearing shoes. Like, it's all <laughs> so messed up that, like, you know there's something freaky is going to happen. Uh-huh. Um, but, and so I was kind of expecting, right, that first act to be a kind of throat clearing, um, right, let's get some of the chest busting out of the way um, yeah. until we can get to the, the freaky recorder playing half of this movie. Were you down for the romantic poetry part? I mean, were you, did this excite you or? I loved it. Yeah. I really loved it. It's funny. I was talking to one of my friends who works. He works in the bar on my corner. So we, you know, we talk about movies. Um, and he was saying, oh, you know, I was loving the movie. It was a total return to form. And then we just sat in this like candlelit cave for like so long that I basically fell asleep. Uh-huh. And I was like, but this was wonderful. You know, it was really a chance for the Alien franchise to be self-indulgent and explicit about the philosophical stakes yeah. of this movie-making project, which have you know always been what people have loved about it, but um, it just felt wonderful that you know so many movies in they could be like, okay, let's just have two androids talk to each other about the nature of truth and beauty. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like we've earned it. I wonder if you could maybe give us a quick. Uh a quick lit lesson maybe why is it a fit for david to be so into romantic art to kind of obsess over like the sublime and creation is it is it because it like so easily gives way to this sort of like gothic mad scientist thing what do you think you know i think that what i you know at least in my experience as an academic i used to teach english in college um romantics represent this human view on the you know quote unquote natural world, whereby everything means something for people, right? That like animals and mountaintops and daffodils and uh, you know, that this that experiencing the quote unquote natural world provides some element of the sublime, which allows human beings to understand their 
role in the universe in some kind of magical way. And I think that to put that um, that poetry in the mouth of David, the android, makes him instinctively for the viewer seem like somebody who is misunderstanding what it means to be on a planet. Mm. Right. In a, in a, in a fatal way, just because romanticism is so out of step with the way that we see, we relate to our world now, you know, in the era of climate change, thinking about, um, you know, the, the, the terrible destructive way that we've related to the, to the, the world around us. It just feels wrong. Yeah. Um, this is a tiny spoiler, but I have to ask as someone who's taught college English classes, when he said that Ozymandias was a Byron poem, were you like, no, that's not right? Or were you? No, okay. I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't either. But it was, yeah, I was just <laughs> curious. I haven't taught college English classes. But um, no, it was, that was a great moment. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask him about something that you didn't bring up. Your, there's, I mean, people have, there's so much about David to dive into that people have in their various pieces. Um, but David claims to love humans, right? And to have loved Dr. Shaw, uh, from the prior, from Prometheus. Um, and that claim sort of leads to some quite disturbing moments of like non-consensual, like affection, uh, that he shows where it seems like he's kind of trying on what he thinks being human is. So if we assume that he isn't just lying, what do you think this movie could be saying about like what love means when it's practiced by a consciousness that isn't human? I don't know. And since I wrote the review, I've been thinking about the movie more. I feel more worried about the way that David expresses his love. Not least because, I mean, this is also kind of a spoiler, but he kisses Walter at one point. Right. Which suggests either that his version of love is just kind of like ultimate narcissism. Mm-hmm. He, fe- he, he just feels an affinity for things that remind him of himself. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, or he's just kind of a caricature, you know, like evil gay villain, mm. which is something that it didn't occur to me while I was watching the movie. And then I was like, oh my God, he's like a Bond villain, right? He's European and effeminate right. and therefore evil. And then I was like, wow, that's so dumb. So I, I now feel a little confused and like, I want to think more about the question of what his, you know, ability to love means yeah. or, you know, lack of ability to love because I now feel suspicious of that whole thread in the movie. I had sort of forgotten about the Walter kiss because when he like has like pinned and kisses, uh, Daniels is, was so much more like graphic and, and weird in my, and violent in my mind. But yeah, I don't know. It, I, I guess I sort of thought that he was just that it was like maybe this is like the one thing that humans can do that I'm not supposed to be able to so here goes I'm going to smooch everything violently <laughs> yeah there's a bit where he's talking about um, Walter could be more creative than he knows and I was just thinking about the idea of um, you know like a creative robot and uh, as maybe some kind of like weird euphemism for his robot sexuality let me ask you about uh walter um because so much has been written about david we had another guest on this podcast who came on just to talk about what a great villain david is um but how would you describe him as sort of sounding like an american newscaster he's sort of like so blandly and unaffectedly like 
white and male that it seems like he maybe is engineered to, to like exist out of time so but beyond like the plot maneuvers that we won't totally spoil um he's pretty key to the ideological debate at the core of this movie right his uh, you know apparent simplicity or lack of charisma compared to david um abs- yeah i mean it, it overshadows the complexity that's that's kind of buried within him um just on that word charisma, you know, there are so many other instances, you know, in the kind of alien back catalogue that show the danger of a charismatic android. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Um, and in film history that like giving your android a personality of any kind just makes things really complicated and really dangerous. Right. Because um, it won't want to be a slave. It won't want to be a slave. And so the character, you know, Dave Walter is not a blank slate right like he has a character but that character was coded by the idea of i use the word newscaster because his voice to me sounds like well i'm, I'm not americans but it sounds to me just like a television voice sure like he sounds like the voice coming out of a machine already yeah um oh yeah i think he also um provides a very interesting foil to now i can't remember his name the dude who like has faith who has to assume command of the ship. Oh, Billy Crudup's character. Um, yes. The the captain after James Franco dies. Right. I think he he provides a very interesting foil to the captain because the captain is also an uncharismatic character. Right. right? Like yeah. his problem is that people don't respond to him on a personal level. Totally. Um, and so they feel that he's kind of unfit to make decisions. Um, and then it turns out that in fact he is. Um. There's some, so there's something about Walter that makes him feel much more reliable to be like somebody in charge to tend to the flock, right? Mm-hmm. Than this totally fallible, non-charismatic, religious human being. So my last one for you. Um, we always sort of assume that you know human and humans are the the dominant emotional fixture in any movie, um, but you point out in the the conclusion of your piece that. We don't actually have any idea how powerful humans or how central humans are in this universe as it's depicted. Um, we don't have, I mean, we've really in this franchise never had any idea what kind of state earth is in, but it seems like in this one, we have less idea than ever uh, with these colonists departing and looking for something new. Can you explain what you meant about this movie potentially depicting like a post-human universe? Well, when they arrive on that, dastardly planet <laughs> you know they're walking around and the first disaster that befalls anyone is to the botanist's assistant right. right yep and she's there trying to look for you know like what is the nature of this place mm-hmm. um and as soon as they try to just you know interfere with and kind of sample and scientific scientifies right do science on the nature of this place then it kind of wreaks its revenge pretty instantaneously, right? And the um, in that particular scene, um, the alien is generated by kind of like the spores yeah. coming out of like a little puffball thing, mm-hmm. um, and it's very very um, naturalistic. The uh, that planet looks so much like Earth that the thing that it appears to be absent of is life, um, and so the suggestion is to me like it just conjures the image of. A planet without us. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. A place that is still just as beautiful, a place that feels hospitable, a place where corn still grows, but the 
the queasy horror of them walking around and being like, where are all the people like us? Yeah. We're looking for a home and this seems like our, just like our home, but this is, this place seems totally unfriendly. And why is that? And to me, it just, it just seems to invoke, you know, as I was discussing before about the significance of romanticism, the kind of total opposite of romanticism, which is discussions about the Anthropocene, the end of the Anthropocene, um, post-humanism, thinking about what it means for us to talk about climate change, not just in science, but in culture as well. Um, this totally seems to me like a kind of, a beauty, it's a beautiful vision of a post-human earth right? mm-hmm. and all the dangers that live there. And what could quietly be like kind of a post-human movie. And that's sort of what makes it disturbing at the end. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to say about the the kind of post-human stakes of this movie, Covenant, is that it's really it seems like a really smart decision to me because I just don't think that any protagonist since Ripley has worked. Oh, certainly. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and I, you know, I rewatched Alien after I watched um, Alien Covenant and that character is just so extraordinary in her physicality she defined what that corner of the triangle, right? And what the human corner of the triangle is for this universe. Mm -hmm. And no one has ever been able to do it again. Um, And so it it makes total sense to me that, right, the other two points of the triangle are coming to the fore now. Yeah, wave the white flag on not, on Sigourney Weaver being 70 and probably not (laughs) wanting to be in these movies anymore. Exactly. Although I do want her to come back and throw that basketball again. (laughs) Yeah, David's hook shot versus her behind the headshot in resurrection oh my god he could like cross her up at the, at the goal <laughs> you know if, i don't know how many more of these ridley scott wants to make but if it devolved into a ripley david one-on-one game i or evolved maybe <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i would pay so much hard-earned money to see that oh man uh well josephine thanks so much for your time and uh and your insights much appreciated thank you so much for having me you still don't understand what you're dealing with do you perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. Buddy, are you ready to go back to where this all began? Are you ready to go back to Titanic? Yes. <laughs> Not Cameron yet. Okay. Uh, Ridley, Ridley Scott, Still 1979. Ridley Scott. Alien. Um, let's keep this to like a quick 15 minute. Well, why don't I ask you this? Is there anything wrong with this movie other than it didn't have quite enough money? The only thing, yes, the only thing wrong with this movie is the fact that it's like three, it three out of its like six big like card tricks are so easy to spot. Mm-hmm. One of them is Ian Holmes's like robot head, like being cut in with the like plastic one. The very jarring edit. Very jarring at it. The other yeah. one is the alien. Sc- after it pops out of uh, John Hurt, it like it's clearly like on a stick, and it like it's a pretty goofy shot. What's the third one? Oh, the th- I, and like it has no like concept. It has like the Star Warsian like space stuff going on. What does that mean? How is that a criticism? Well, it's just like, it's, I mean, it's, they use miniatures. Like, of course, it's not going to, like, the original Star Wars don't look as good as the new Star Wars because they didn't have CGI. 
Are you not the kind of person who sometimes thinks that the very, like, grotesque look of 70s, like, puppet effects looks better than middling CGI? I tend to think that. Oh, 100%. I can almost get into the illusion of it. I mean, yes, it's oh, clearly, yeah. well, it's it's clearly more honest. Aste- it's, more, it's more like an analog, and it inherently looks better to how our eyes were trained to watch movies. Yes. Yeah, the illusion of the movie, it's really easy to... I mean, yes, it's on a stick, but it's also like, if some crazy fucking thing popped out of someone's chest, who are we to say it, it wouldn't, like, zip in that creepy-ass straight line? Like... Yeah. Yeah, why would it? It probably would look like a small remote control car. (laughs) Yeah, for all we know. It's a pretty brilliant movie. It reminded me a lot of Jaws, frankly. Where it's just like. In the way. Everything everything kind of feels like a small miracle. Where it's like, I'm not sure how that worked, but it worked better than anything I've seen. (laughs) Right. I mean, you kind of care about these people. Like, I think the making the two, like tech guys like were the ones who were getting paid a half share and they talk about that a lot yeah and like that's interesting to me that there's people have called it like truckers in space right and there's but there's like a class system clearly like there's the educated people who are working with the computers yeah and then there are the uneducated people who are working with like the machines Mm -hmm. and it's a very interesting setup and then i think it's also a very early movie to have this kind of female protagonist Right. I would have to say. And she gets beat up and she's gritty and she's the only one with any sense. I really love the way on that note that, I mean, you think about Ellen Ripley and you think about Ellen Ripley from Aliens, right? She's a badass. She's got a gun that's half the size of her body. She's taking charge. She's chewing people out. I love the way in this movie that she's sort of like, really incidentally like ascends the ranks of this crew because she's just like guys we have rules here we should maintain the quarantine john hurt shouldn't come back on the ship right they say like no we're gonna break quarantine and then she you know she has to deal with yafit koto's gripes about his share like you just sort of see her like start to separate from people and separate from people and then a few people die and all of a sudden like she's alan ripley like she's it and it's really smart. She doesn't come out like Lady Rambo. Right. Like, I think the biggest flaw, frankly, with the original Alien movie is there's too many fucking, like, movies in its universe. Yeah. And it puts itself, like, highly up to scrutiny for, like, well, this was the source material. I mean, it's like the problem with Jaws. Like, the sequels to Jaws are horrible. Like, horrible, horrible. Right. And I think it's because you can't, like you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Can I tell you on that? I forgot to tell you. Can I, I want to share with you my my line about like how weird it is when David like takes over the new movies. I was just like, well, this is like if they remade Jaws 5 and called it like Jaws Poseidon and then made like the Captain Quint character like the lead. <laughs> like it's that kind of like creepy, unlikely thing. But like, what are you supposed to do? Just remake Alien, remake Jaws? Like they're getting weird with it. Yeah. Um, back to Alien. Uh, the other thing I just love about Alien, and we kind of like many people have touched on, like how enjoyable it is to see like these blue collar adults kind of like work this out. Right. Have we They're, talked about the plot of this movie before we get too far? Oh, good lord! No, we didn't. So 
well, you were just getting into it. The, the interesting thing about this movie is that, so here are in the future, like six or seven blue collar workers on this transport that's carrying like 20 million pounds of iron ore or whatever it yeah. said. Yeah. And going from this ore mine to back to earth. And it's not anything. They're not like looking for civilization. They're not colonizing. They're just, you know, doing the equivalent of driving like a 16 wheeler from the East coast to the West coast. Totally. They find this signal that says like, Oh, there's some downship. There's a downship SOS kind of thing. And you have to, then because of company protocol, I guess because ships are so few in those parts that if something interesting happens, you have to go check it out. Guess what? There's a fucking room full of alien face eggs. huggers in there. Yeah. Well, it's one of the battleships that they had. That's like full of these spores, which Prometheus has told us are meant to exterminate humanity. They do a hell of a job at it. So what I love about the blue collar adults in space is just just that nobody's really an expert. They're all very capable of like their jobs and tasks surrounding their jobs. There's a Harry Dean Stanton line where after they find out the facehugger has acid for blood, of course, right? And it goes through the ship and it eats all the way through several floors. And he goes, they must be using it for blood. <laughs> and that's just like such a weird, like... He's not a scientist. He's like, it appears that the blood is molecular acid. Right. He's a guy who says they're using their blood for blood. It's incredible, like, writing in a very small dialectical kind of way. Well, that's the interesting thing. And what this movie has on its side is that you don't know the premise. You're saying one of the best things about Alien is that it's the first one. (laughs) Yeah, that's 100% what I'm saying. I love it. No, it's really true. Um being introduced to the rules of this universe is a goddamn pleasure and relearning them over and over again is well, not. This is, well, that's, yeah. The, the, I think the mistakes between like the later movies and the early ones is like this movie, it just gives us an episode that exists in this other world and mm-hmm. it sets the alien franchise up, not mo- like really for the society of it, but just sort of like the morality of it. Right. Like, this is how fate works, like, in this world. Before we move on and give this probably the rating that we're going to give it, can we talk about some of, like, the very best moments of just, like, how they made do? Like, they just... The fact that Ian Holm has to do his own malfunction spins is, like, yes, it's clearly, like, him just throttling himself around but also like he fucking did it it looks really good or like you know just like we said about some of the practical effects the blood packet bursts and like the mouth like the android cream burst from the (laughs) mouth like it's disgusting but it's real like liquid shooting out from the camera and it's horrifying Uh, my favorite one my favorite one when dallas is in the tunnel and it's the tracker um, they really Scott edits the bejesus out of that scene. Like I know what's gonna. I've rewatched it like four times, and I jump every time. Dallas, the other way. <laughs> it's really well done. And there's these incredible set pieces too that I think it benefits from. That we're just on the Nostromo, like they're really. And then on this right. planet, 
You don't, and then you're inside the. That's like the other the weird visual thing that all these movies have, and then they get even worse. <laughs> is that everything's wet? Every surface everywhere is wet, and it's humid everywhere. Everywhere's humid, and it's wet, and then it just gets mucusier and mm-hmm. mucusier, like as the movies go on. Right. <laughs> it is pretty gross. Um. So I'll go ahead and start the ratings. I think that this is an unquestionable good good. Like I said, everything feels like like a minor miracle that's, you know, paying off like $10 on the dollar. Um, and Sigourney Weaver is great. She To watch her become Ripley, I think, is actually more fun and certainly more moving than to watch her be Ripley later on. Um, and Newt! Yeah. Yes. <laughs> For example, yes. We'll get to that in a second. Great, great. Yeah, I agree with you. Cool. This is a, this is a classic. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, this ain't happening, man. This can't be happening, man. This isn't happening. All right. We've got seven canisters of CN20. I said we roll them in there and nerve gas the whole fucking nest. That's worth a try, but we don't even know if it's going to affect them. Look, let's just bug out and call it even, okay? What are we talking about this for? I say we take off and nuke the entire site for Morbid. So after Alien comes Aliens, James Cameron takes over. And I would say that Aliens, plural, is the Terminator 2 of the Alien world, except this time Michael Bean is in it. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, yeah. So it's 86, which is late. It's like a seven-year gap. I mean, this is one of the the things that I think... I'm going to say a bunch of stuff about this movie. But I think to watch the early, early machinations of a franchise becoming a franchise is really interesting. Because it's James. It's just something that James Cameron is imagining. He's basically doing a cross-genre transformation of this thing and giving it legs that, like didn't exist we didn't have a we didn't have studios that were like excellent one every two years in perpetuity like that didn't happen so it was like seven years later and he took this uh you know a bad day aboard the nostromo and turned it into like (laughs) ripley's a hero space marines how many more aliens plural are there about a hundred like let's do this yeah there's a real infestation in this one yeah, this one's definitely jacked up to 11, which is yeah. both the best thing about it and what I think ultimately cripples it for any future films. <laughs> yeah, do you want to synopsize? So yeah, um, so the movie picks up where the first one left off, which is Ridley's flying through space in this thing that she's been sitting in with her cat, Jonesy, after shooting the last alien out the back door. Yeah, 57 uh, years. It's been 57 years, so she gets off. She looks exactly the same. She's got a more stylish haircut. I think this movie does, like, a lot of damage to, like, the what was a pretty great, like, female character that was created in Alien 1. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we better make her a mother figure in Alien 2 or nobody's... This thing has no legs. <laughs> right. She can't be the most capable when there's space marines. And then David Fincher comes in and goes, yo, fuck that kid. <laughs> Fuck Michael Bean. <laughs> fuck that kid and fuck Michael Bean. <laughs> um, 
but anyway, so she gets, she's back like outside Earth. They're like, it's in the space suburbs of Earth. <laughs> and Paul Reiser's there and he's the representative for this company that she works for. And the Wayland like, Corporation. Does it, is it stated in Aliens? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So they basically ask really like, what happened like a million years ago when you blew up our ship for no fucking reason? And, or perceivably no reason. And she's like, oh, there was this alien and all my guys are dead. And they're like, we don't believe you. And she's like, if you don't believe me, like check on this planet where we fucking found the alien. And they go, you're ridiculous. People live there and they've lived there for years and everything's fine. And she's like, I don't think that's, that's probably not going to last very long. <laughs> and then she's just, she takes like a brief nap. And then Paul Reiser comes in and he's like, hey, I remember what we talked about like four hours ago about everything being fine. Yeah, we haven't heard from those people in weeks. So we need to send you out there. Oh, yeah. She goes out there with like several ethnic stereotypes as Marines. Um, and sadly, well, not sadly, this is one of his finest performances. Uh, Bill Paxton the weird like goofball element that James Cameron brings to like an otherwise pretty serious like source material. Yeah. Like there's so much slapstick like in the actual Marine guys who like don't actually strike me as real Marines. Cause they like don't seem particularly interested in like planning anything <laughs> or, and they like give up immediately at any sign of defeat. Yeah. It's, it's very strange, but it's like a very slapsticky, like, Almost like Tim Burton-y look at the future. Interesting. It's too sh- schlocky and muscular for Burton, but I know what you yeah. mean. It's like these guys are, they're fucking cowboys. They're not Marines. Right. Yeah, they just want to go in there and, and shoot it up, exemplified by dozens of Bill Paxton lines, which you can watch in a super like several supercuts on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, they're horrible. We just got our ass handed to us. Well, you're getting into freak out Paxton, which is incredible. <laughs> it's amazing that he can, I mean, for a ridiculous performance, that he can take the energy that for 90 minutes is just like braggy nonsense and turn it into childish terror <laughs> is pretty great. I have to, my working theory is that James Cameron does not cast like the best actors to play the roles he's written. He casts the actors that just happen to resemble the character that he had in his head that will Uh deliver a performance maybe totally like, like not on the same page as like what it should be. But as long as they like physically resemble. So I think of course, like Billy Zane represents in his mind what James Cameron thought for, uh, Cal. For for Cal for Callan and Hockley, but like, that's not a good casting decision. <laughs> right. You know, as we've discussed, he's on a completely Michael Bean page. is way better in this movie, but he's horrible in the original Terminator. Yeah, I don't remember. You know, also Bill Pax Bill Paxton in literally anything. Bill Paxton can't be your like your go-to Philip Seymour Hoffman in supporting roles like Paul Thomas Anderson. Like no. you, you have to like find a real actor. All right, Fee. I'm not saying that he like didn't render a performance and didn't no, give you it just his said all. He wasn't a real actor. <laughs> okay, so I want to let's turn a corner here. To a lot of people, 
this aliens is like Indiana Jones to them. It's like Star Wars to them. Sure. It is an infallible piece of early blockbuster filmmaking that makes them feel in this sort of shit talky adventure way that like, you know, it's the gold standard. But whatever, I mean, I don't think this movie is bad, but I don't think it's unimpeachable. Whatever like spell that like people get that like this reminds them of like, this is what adventure blockbuster filmmaking is. I don't get it. It's like you said, the dynamic between the Marines is campy and ridiculous. And Sigourney Weaver is like, once again, like, you know, by this point, she's, she's the star of this franchise. Like she's raring to go. But this movie's really long, and it doesn't have that, like I, like I said, where it feels like everything in Alien is like, wow, this shouldn't have gone right, and it went better than anyone could have imagined. This movie just feels like, yeah, all the parts are there that, in retrospect, are fairly safe, and it's going as well as it's been constructed by one of the best like managerial blockbuster filmmakers we have. Yeah, but I also think that, like, the branding of Alien, like, when people think of, when you say Alien, I don't think they're thinking of Alien 1. I think they're thinking of Aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the idea of, like, big guns against, like, aliens coming out of the ceiling. Like, that is a product of Aliens. And, like, this sort of evil corporation that, like, really explicitly, like, humans are on board, too, with, like, the... You know, I guess he's sort of playing um, Paul Reiser, sort of playing the um, the Newman from Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, here, so he sort of sabotages their late efforts. But yeah, it's. I think it. It's like I mean, I'm already bringing up Jurassic Park. I think it like set up a lot of interesting sci-fi, like Spiel. Like we're talking more Spielberg than. Ridley Scott. We're talking... I mean, I think Scott sort of sees himself as like a Kubrick. Like, Alien, I think, he believes is on the same level as like 2001 A Space Odyssey, except it's a horror movie. Right. Um, But this is more Spielberg of like, the aliens are just the foil, the bad guys. Like, it's not... You know, we don't live in a totally like... Like, there are good people and there are heroic people and... Like I was like my brother and I were watching the original Alien yesterday after we saw Covenant. Yeah. And it's like it's boring. Yeah. To to a, someone who is ready for who's who's accustomed to a certain level of action sci-fi movie mm-hmm. akin to Covenant. If you go from Covenant to the original Alien, it's ridiculous. And I think that it's but, a completely and then different watching kind of movie. but then watching Aliens is not, I don't think. I think Aliens holds up better. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, he translated it to blockbuster. The first movie is not a blockbuster. And even the technology in Aliens, like, doesn't feel so antiquated. Like, it's, of course, not anywhere near with what we're dealing with, but it still feels somewhat futuristic in its ambition, I think. This okay. one's definitely has way less technical flaws, I think. I don't think those are flaws is a very judgmental word Or budget limitations or whatever. But if you're looking at it, if you're looking at this whole collection of movies as like one narrative, Mm -hmm. like it definitely had, sure, the the first one was more humble. 
than this one. But I think if you're building something that is standing the test of time of technological visual effect scrutiny, this one definitely stands up better. It's not perfect. There's some pretty horrible like screen over screen like there's an explosion on like a different screen behind them kind of <laughs> shots and there's a couple weird like animated like pipes exploding yeah but other than that i think it's pretty sound i think it's sound i think it's undynamic in comparison though you know this movie is loud and it's big and it's one of those electronic guns just slowly running out of rounds for two and a half hours, you know? Yeah. I but think like, this one... It's pretty enjoyable. I definitely so, think it's... Sort of? I don't I know. definitely think it's better than Covenant. Yeah. I don't think this movie has a brain in its head, though. But it, like, knows that it doesn't need one. Right, that's true. Which I sort of respect about it. Sure. It knows that it's fucking cool when Vasquez pins the alien's face against the vent with her boot and then shoots it. Or it knows that it's cool when Michael Bean jumps through the glass when he has no idea whether it's broken or not. I like (laughs) Like, that's some cool shit. I like the running bit where, like, James Cameron clearly had a moment when he was watching the original Alien. He's like, you you guys don't use the acid blood nearly enough. Right. And so now every time someone is shot, or every, every time an alien is shot, there is the like residual yeah. of someone has acid on them. It's amazing. It's not amazing. It's way too long. It's, it's way I'll give too, it to it, you. It ends like four different times. I'll give that all that to you, but I'm still going to have to say that I think this is a good good. I think, and I think, frankly, a great grade. Wow. I think it, it's, it's, for what it sets out to do, I think it is as good as the original. I think in retrospect, when I've seen... I've seen blockbusters, the size and tone of Aliens so many times. I think it might just be bad good. I think there are I mean, bad it's... things about it, but I think that they are ultimately forgivable because it's ultimately a well-made science fiction movie with that led to a host of Michael Crichton novels getting optioned <laughs> for screen. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't mean to be too mean. I just like, like I said, this movie is not Indiana Jones to me. Like Bill Paxton and Michael Bean and uh, the rapist from Shawshank and Vasquez. Like, I love him. <laughs> I mean, those guys are, they're like strange dynamic is interesting, but like they're ever, this whole ugh. movie is just broing it up. What if instead of one alien, there were a hundred? And what if, what if Ridley gets into like a mechanical suit and just beats the hell out of one? Ripley. You keep calling her Ridley. <laughs> what did I say? I say Ripley? You keep calling her Ridley. Whatever. You do things too sometimes. Yes. Um, for instance, <laughs> not like aliens. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to talk about Alien 3 tonight? No, I, I can't. I haven't seen it in a few years. I just, I mean, I remember it pretty well though. All right. So, buddy, next time, we Alien 3. Venture further into the great beyond. <laughs> Alien Cubed, Resurrection, and uh, AVP. 
Yeah, and I may just watch AVP Requiem just for the hell of it, but... You, you let me know how that is. That's not um, required reading for this class. No. <laughs> yeah, you can go off syllabus if you like, but... It's not recommended. <laughs> right, you don't know what's out there. Okay. Um... Do you think we're less Ripley and her cat and more just David and Walter? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the only question is which one of us has the flute in our mouths and which one of us is controlling <laughs> the fingers. That was such a... Okay, I could get on board because that flute scene was incredible. Thanks so much to Kevin Lincoln and Josephine Livingston for coming on the program. We'll include the links to their pieces uh, on the website. Find past episodes of the show at berealpodcast.com. You can find us talking about all kinds of cool stuff like Disney's kind of sort of live action remakes or three movies where dummies find a bag of money or uh, the collaborations of Spike Lee and Denzel or cult weed movies. We've done a lot of fun stuff this spring. Um, And now that uh, summer blockbuster season is upon us, we'll hopefully do a lot more. If you want to get in touch, we're at BeRealPod on Twitter. Uh, We're also on Facebook. You can email us at uh, BeRealGuys. We are still those two at uh, gmail.com. Buddy, how'd we do? I think we killed it. How do you think we did? I I can't lie to you about our chances, but uh, (laughs) you have my sympathies. (laughs) Until next time, going into hypersleep now.